Welcome to Mad Dogs and Englishmen, the special return of the non-native edition. Uh, Charlie Cook has returned from Great Britain, formerly Great Britain, possibly Great Britain, and we are sitting here on the 142nd floor of Buckley Towers overlooking Manhattan, drinking some of the world's worst coffee from the uh, National Review Canteen, and reviewing the performance of the Democrats last night with their sophomore year all-nighter, Let's Talk About... We don't call it global warming anymore. Now it's climate change. And Charlie is in the odd position of defending these people. Yes, not not for what they said, which was largely hysterical, and not for their general willingness to lie about what is climate change and what is not climate change, the California drought being a great example, uh, and not for their eschatological predictions, which get sillier and sillier by the year, but for taking an initiative and standing up for something that they believe to be true. And my perspective on this is that it is a representative democracy. These 30 senators clearly think that this is a pressing issue. I do not. And they believe that the world is about to end. And I really think about it in the terms of when somebody sits next to me on an airplane and says, well, how could I introduce you to Jesus Christ? And so on. And I try and think, well, if I believed what he believed, then I suppose I would be going around evangelizing too. And so... And they say that. Do you ask if he's in first class or... <laughs> yeah, I say, is he up there? I'll just go... If he's really so selfless, he'll give me his first class seat. But well, no... he probably wouldn't fly first class though, if you think about it. He'd probably be back in coach, you know, meek and humble and all that stuff. I, it's, it's above my pay grade in the president's famous phrase. But no, I, I'm not. I'm not s- suggesting that the content was virtuous. It absolutely wasn't. And I would say one more thing: had this been 30 Republicans talking about Obamacare, it would have been brave. There's no way this would have been a stunt. It would have been a brave thing to talk about. And in fact, if you yeah, take I'm something, gonna you, I'm going to cut you off just real quick. There is an important difference there, which is that those 30 Republicans wanting to get rid of Obamacare are actually willing to introduce legislation to true. repeal Obamacare. There's not going to be any bill that comes out of this. That's it's true. just pure performance. It's a chance to get up there and talk about the evil Koch brothers and what they're doing on the other side and the billionaires who are corrupting our democracy and to pump up the Birkenstocks and Dreadlocks base without actually doing anything. Well, look, And Dem- that's why I think it's sort of more cowardly than brave. See, I don't think it's cowardly. The Democratic Party is not stupid politically. In fact, it's done pretty well recently. And it knows full well that this is not an issue that most Americans care about. The polling shows that. It also knows that it couldn't get the bill through. It was Harry Reid who killed it himself when they had full control. Uh, They couldn't get it past the House anyway. So they haven't introduced a bill since 2006. Are they that committed legislatively? No, they're clearly not. There are also things that Republicans really covet that they can't get through either. That doesn't mean that they're wrong. For example, George Bush went on a very lonely, quixotic, and ultimately doomed tour to talk about Social Security and privatization, which is a great idea, in my view, but Republicans instantly ran away from him. Now, does that mean that Bush was somehow, you know, unadmirable for standing up and doing it because public opinion hadn't changed, because he couldn't get anything introduced. No, it did not. Um, likewise, uh, you know, when certain members of the of the House or the Senate stand about abortion, they're not introducing anything either. They still uh, filibuster bills. They still make a point but of it. But they introduce abortion bills all the time. And one thing I think that should be expanded on is you're right that voters in general, including Democratic voters, don't care a whole hell of a lot about the issue of climate change. Democratic donors, on the other hand, well, do. True. They care a lot. You've got this California hedge fund billionaire putting up, what do you say, $100 million Tom or style, something right. like that uh, for the right kinds of candidates. So there is, you know, some self-interest here. I am uh, I am not as inclined to uh, 
read it as generously as you have. Maybe I'm just a smaller person that way. And in terms of the eschatological predictions, I just note that that sounds a lot like scatological, which their predictions also <laughs> sometimes are on this issue. Well, I should note that I give them what do you one, actually, I mean, uh, one chair, not three. Okay. What do you actually think about climate change as an issue? What, what, what's your view on it? My view is that there is almost certainly an impact that human beings have had on the climate that we are not particularly good at ascertaining what that is and that we're way too uh, enthusiastic and trusting in computer models and that even if you take the IPCC at face value, the likelihood of that having a vast the day after tomorrow style impact on the world is limited and if you compare it for example to easily fixable diseases um, clean water clean water then the amount of time we spend discussing this is limited and finally and this will be unsurprising to anybody who reads me what the American federal government can do about it even if it is a problem is almost non-existent because China and India aren't going to play along and the rest of the developing world's not going sure, to play Sure, but along. even if they did suddenly turn around, um, you know, the, I'm with Bjorn Lomberg in that, yeah, there's probably some issue, but it's a matter of realistically ascertaining how difficult it is and, and also what we can actually do about it. And really reacting is probably the only thing. Yeah, and the, the real division on this issue, I think, is, um, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a scientist. I can look at the reports and like them or not like them, but in terms of, you know, judging the computer modeling and all the rest of that stuff, I don't have the, the quantitative chops to do that, and neither basically does anyone without a PhD in the subject. Even with a PhD. That's yeah, that's true. Tough. I mean, there's a lot of wrong stuff on that. But if you take the IPCC report and predictions at face value, they're talking about damage amounting to 1% to 3% of world economic output right. 100 years from now. So why would you seriously kneecap yourself right now for something that's not a not a not a tiny problem. I mean one to three percent of world economic output's a pretty big number. It's not as big a number as say the you know unfunded liabilities for Medicare, but it's it's still a big number. But um that's a manageable figure a hundred years from now when you're talking about a much, much larger world economy. So I don't get the panic on it. Even if you um even if you take, you know, the sort of scientific consensus view as as gospel, it still doesn't really look all that bad. And I think you're right that there, I mean, the real question there is what would these senators, assuming that they had a, uh, you know, the votes to do it, what kind of legislation would they pass that would actually get anything done? I mean, you could severely restrict, restrict, restrict uh, emissions in the United States, both from transportation and industrial uses and agricultural uses, which are a big factor that most people don't think about all that much. Uh, and that wouldn't really have much impact on global warming, which is a global issue. And the other thing that people don't take into account here is that you've got a really important trade-off on this issue, which is if you restrict energy use, you're talking about having, you know, poor people in the rest of the world whose food is more expensive and whose homes are colder, uh, who have less access to the things that they need. If we were able to do legislatively something like, you know, Kyoto Plus, you know, Kyoto with teeth on a worldwide basis, it very well may make 
a lot of people in the world worse off. It may make more people worse off than it makes better off in the long run. And I don't right. think that question's really ever been answered to anyone's satisfaction. No, and what I particularly resent with the discussion of climate change is the pretense that the scientific question and the policy question are inextricable. Right. That is to say that if I disagree with what it is that, say, the Sierra Club wants to do in the Senate, that I'm denying whatever it is that they're suggesting has led to this conversation. Now, in many cases, I am denying it, if that's the word, because I think that they can be hysterical and that they cherry pick their information. But you can come to me and say, right, well, this is what uh, our problem is. And even if every single person in the entire country agreed that that's what the problem is, there would be a hundred different ideas, a thousand, a million different ideas as to what we do about it. That's just the nature of politics. And yet with a minute that you dissent from whatever is the prevailing ideal at the time, then you're a climate denier and so on and so forth. And that's become dangerous because it's not, it's not, uh, you know, it's, it, it's to, to re reject the, the left's version of what we should do is not to deny there's a problem. Right, we can all agree about the chemistry of how narcotics work. That doesn't tell you anything what your drug policy should be. Right. Ferns? <laughs> Between them, I think. <laughs> Between ferns, I think. Well, the, Speaking the, of you being distastefully generous toward Democratic elected officials, uh, you were <laughs> saying earlier that you actually kind of liked the uh, president's performance on Zach Galapalaka Laka Laka, however he says his name. That's two in a row of his names I can't say, by the way, are Nigerian Galifianakis. Yeah, Galifianakis. Uh, his show. And uh, I hate those kinds of shows in general, but um, you liked it. No, I think Zach Galifianakis is hilarious, and I think that that sort of comedy sketch, extended comedy sketch, is pretty funny. Now, for a start, I hear people who say, well, the president shouldn't do things like this because it diminishes, you know, the, the value of the office. Or Bill the Clinton state. playing saxophone yeah, on Arsenio Hall as a candidate. And I don't buy this, actually. I mean, I don't think that there is a particular dignity of the office. I don't want it to be a huge monarchical thing. You know, I, I don't mind if they travel by train. I don't mind if they want to play saxophone on television. Throw I out just, the first baseball. Yeah, I mean, good. It's a republic. I don't really care. I'd like to see a lot less of them and a lot more of the trapping. So if he wants to go on this, that's fine. I didn't like him when he was talking about Obamacare. It just totally ended the sketch, which was yeah. uh, just comedically it ended the sketch. But I was just saying that I, I think that he came across as a pretty nice guy in the first two minutes. And it was strange for me because I hear people say a lot, well, I don't like Barack Obama's politics and I don't like the way he behaves in office, but I think he's likable. I'd want to have a beer with him. And my reaction has always been, I wouldn't. I don't like him as a human being. But I thought he came across very well in this. Yeah, well, I think that um, I'm always surprised when people are surprised by a politician being likable. I mean, that is kind of how you have a political career. True. I mean, there are some people in politics who are deeply unlikable if you kind of get to know them. Um, I'm thinking of the, the many years I spent uh, trailing around Arlen Specter in uh, Philadelphia, who was just a detestable person that nobody liked. I don't think his friends even liked him. Peter King, I think. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a few of those. But um, you know, I've always thought about uh, Obama. I mean, there, there are a lot of attractive qualities about him as a person. I mean, he seems to, you know, genuinely enjoy his family and be sort of a good guy that way. He's obviously a smart guy. Mm -hmm. I mean, you don't listen to him and think, I mean, this guy's a moron. Um, he's weirdly disconnected, I think. It's like he's lived in this, uh, you know, hermetically sealed political bubble all of his life. And I think that came across on the show on Between Two Ferns when he was talking about Obamacare because he seems to just completely remove from reality. Of, you know, how the program is being received, or the problems it's having 
uh, you know, not just the technological problems, but also the underlying Obamacare. Sorry, we're talking about the Obamacare program, not between two. Oh yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, which is technically executed brilliantly. And if they had been in charge of the website, I'm sure they would have uh, they would have done it. Uh, I think the uh, and I think the reason why so many people uh, who have our view dislike him and think of him as being unpersonable and maybe even not bright is because of that disconnection. Because um, if you haven't lived in that bubble, and even though people like you and me are not of that world, we are inevitably in it because we spend our time in places like New York and Washington, and so you kind of know those people. You kind of understand them a little bit but if you're you know if you're kevin williamson back in lubbock texas and you don't spend a lot of time around uh people who have grown up in that sort of bubble and you, you can't handicap them you know in a sense personally then they they kind of seem like martians and weird and i think slightly threatening i think that's part of the um the whole kind of you know birther secret muslim yeah. uh manchurian candidate thing i think it's kind of a weird cultural reaction to the fact that obama does seem alien to uh, to a lot of people. Uh, if you were an academic, you would write a capital O other. I'm making quote marks here on an all not, all audio uh, broadcast. But uh. so the the one, one more thing on, on the one more f- uh, the between two ferns appearance is this: the sycophants immediately there was a talking points memo post about how he has perfect comic timing and he's the great leader and all of this, and then conservatives criticized it. Because it was obviously an infomercial after two minutes, which was not funny and it wasn't remotely subversive, and it's kind of embarrassing to watch comedians do that. And also, when you see comedians making fun of the Kenya thing, it is funny to see them do it to the president's face, but the joke is on the birthers, not the president. But I still think that if you had said a year and a half ago to Obama's team, or at least the media savvy ones, would you have him in this situation being mocked for his signature law? Because there, there were no punches pulled. There's that Galifianakis basically said, so why did you draw up a health law that doesn't work? Why was your website so terrible? And he got really defensive about it. They would have, of course, said, no, 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 we don't want to do that. That he is there, that this has become a public joke, you know, on a, a wide variety of television shows, is hugely problematic for the law. Yeah, and, I, and in a sense that um, gives me some hope for the kind of entertainment and uh, Hollywood community because normally for all their poses of being you know people who speak truth to power and being outsiders and artists they spend all their time being basically toadies to uh to fairly entrenched political interests you know sort of barbara streisand and the clintons uh you know your average hollywood democrat uh who doesn't know anything about what's uh what's going on but certainly you know who's the good guys and who's the bad guys on the subject of streisand that reminds me i think it was barbara streisand who it was during the clinton years and she was mad that Sharon Stone had been invited to some White House thing, and she said, Sharon Stone, what does she know about policy? <laughs> and uh, I, I must have laughed for 30 minutes straight after uh, hearing that. I just I couldn't help myself. This is Barbara Streisand, who's so open-minded that she canceled her subscription to the LA Times when they hired Jonah Goldberg, of course. You know, if I ever, uh, if I ever have that effect in the world, that if I get a column somewhere and someone like Barbara Streisand cancels because of it, I will feel like I maybe have done something worthwhile with my life, so I do. I do envy Joan of that. I have it blown up into a large picture on the wall. Oh, I'd make a billboard out of it and put it on uh, on uh, one of the freeways there in Los Angeles. <laughs> All right, so uh, we'll be back again tomorrow with another raft of stuff to talk about, and uh, see you then. <laughs>